0: Welcome back, my friends, to another episode of the Shema Podcast. I have a guest with us today that I'm so excited to bring on and actually bring some clarity to things I've talked about in the past. We're all just learning together here. One of the things I sort of discuss with you guys is how the beauty of what we have with Torah and the mitzvot and all the halakha that comes forth from those mitzvot is it brings clarity into our daily lives. So we always sort of have these binary choices of choosing to connect to Hashem and fulfill His will. from Everything is as mundane as the proper way to tie your shoe. But one of the things that has come up that creates a little disconnect in this is that if you look at the yeshiva world and the the bread and butter of what they study, they're learning Talmud, these arguments going back and forth. And... I always understood that as is important to learn that so that when you find yourselves in situations where you don't necessarily know what the halakha is and I can't you know get in touch with one of my rabbis in that moment that I'll know how to conclude what the proper action is at that point but in the small amount of Talmud study I've done over the years since I've been in this community it's interesting that a lot of it ends with we don't know the answer wait for Mashiach to come and I am very fortunate as I told you that you know Hashem is always orchestrating the right people to come to your life. And the guests that I have coming on, Hashem orchestrated to move all the way from Atlanta, Georgia, move his family to Houston, Texas, so he could teach me Torah, which is so amazing that Hashim did that for me. I do think he had other reasons to come here as well, but that's the way I see it. So I'm gonna bring him on now and we're really gonna delve into this. I'm excited to introduce our guests to you
1: welcome to the Shema podcast the podcast for the perplexed where Torah insights intertwined through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot for more great Torah learning through torch the Torah Outreach Center of Houston go to Torchweb.org. now to the show
0: Rabbi Shlomo pill thank you for joining us on the podcast Thank you so much for having me.
1: Maybe this is why I came to Houston. I'm not sure. It could be. It could be.
0: Now, I know that because you came here to teach me Torah, that you also need a livelihood to support yourself. I
1: do, yeah. An unfortunate consequence of the realities of life, yeah. So my nine to five is, uh, I work as a law professor. I teach law at
0: Texas Southern University. Beautiful. I love this topic. Before I start studying Torah, this is... You know, one of the areas that I was really into, because as someone who's passionately studies economics, you can't study economics and be divorced a government, right? And so I, that when you're reading the Heritage Guide, the Constitution, really understand the construct of it and the philosophy behind it, which is, as far as man-made documents, is probably one of the most brilliant man-made documents out there. But then I, I started looking at, I think this will lead to our conversation at hand too. Because this is what I think started our conversation in the shul the other day, right? Right, is that when you then take the Constitution and all the enumerary powers, you know, by to Congress and things that they're not allowed to do, and then you try to reconcile it with our government today, you're like, how does this fit together? And that led me to start reading a lot of court decisions and things like that, that sort of how they shaped it. I always said when I, when I started learning Torah, the appreciation for the fact that we got a written Torah. We got an oral Torah, which I guess we can't really call it oral anymore because it's now redacted. But the idea was that because when you transmit something verbally from teacher to student, it takes away the fact that people can reread texts in a different light. And it seems like that's what's happened with our Constitution and why that oral tradition was so necessary for the Torah in that. And I said to you, I said, it seemed like we lacked an oral tradition with the U.S. Constitution because it's only been, what, 200 and... 40 years now? Is that about right? Almost 250, yeah. Yeah, almost 250 years. And I think if the founders looked at our government today, they'd be perplexed. But you you said that there was an oral tradition. I think this may be a good stepping stone to our conversation. Sure. Uh, well, I,
1: you know, it depends on how you talk about oral tradition, right? The um, Rabbi Shlomo Luria, who was a, a very important commentator on the Talmud and, and an authority on halacha on Jewish law, who lived in uh, the 1600s, 1700s, he made the point that really uh, you always face an oral tradition, uh, right? There, there's always a need for an oral tradition. Anytime you have a text... Um, inevitably, there's an oral tradition. You, you made the point that well, uh, the Jewish oral tradition is now a text. Uh, the 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 Torah Shabbat, the, the oral Torah, was uh, put into uh, the text of the Talmud. But of course, as soon as it gets put into the text of the Talmud, a new oral tradition interpreting the text of the Talmud develops. And oral doesn't mean necessarily literally oral, but it means non-canonized, right? Not set in stone. Um, and there's and as soon as you attempt to write a code, which is what has happened every few hundred years in Jewish history. In the history of Jewish law and the history of halacha, Every few hundred years, there's so much material, so much disagreement, so much discussion about what came before that somebody comes along and tries to codify it and put it all together and say, well, where does, where does halacha stand now? What, what are the rules after all of this? And as soon as they do that, whether it's the Rambam Maimonides in uh, the the eleven hundreds, or it's the the Rush and the Tour in thirteen hundreds Spain, or it's Rabbi Yosef Cairo and 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 Rabbi Moshe Israel writing the Shulchan Aruch and the Rama in the mid fifteen hundreds, or it's uh, the Mishnah Brura and the Aruch HaShulchan writing codes in the late eighteen hundreds and early nineteen hundreds. As soon as they do this, immediately everybody starts complicating it and commenting on it. And now you just have a new text that's producing a new oral tradition. And Rabbi Luria's point is is that um, it doesn't matter what you write, the very act of writing or how well you write it, the very act of trying to put something into a text um, creates unclarity creates uncertainty about what the text means, creates ambiguity in the words that you're using or how you apply those words to situations that don't quite fit this, the, the context. Uh, we have this in, in, in halakha and we, and we have this in, in American law and especially in constitutional law um as well um every time we have a supreme court decision immediately we have a body of which it purports to clarify something um we immediately have unclarity and uncertainty and disagreement about what are the implications of this decision what does it really mean what's the rule actually um, and the same the same thing plays out in halakha as well um lots of uncertainty
0: right i noticed you know i had this mr bura on my desk and when, you, when I was first trying to get familiar with how the structure of it's set up, it has the Shikon Ruk, then it has the Mishnah Bura, but then it has half the page as all his other text. So I asked Rabbi Winder when I was the uh, Kollel studying at one Shabbos, and he said, that's the commentary that came out since the Mishnah Bura, he goes, and, and you come back 50 years from now, it will probably be lengthier. <laughs> so I guess that lends to what you're saying. It does. And it's
1: interesting because like, when we talk about the Shulchan Aruch or we talk about the Mishnah brua what we're talking about is not the original text authored by Rabbi Cairo or, or by the Chafetz Chaim. We're talking about the book that's printed with all of the later commentary altogether. That's the Shulchan Aruch, meaning you can't treat that the, 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 the original text on its own. And we don't. We don't regard the original text as a Shulchan Aruch. We regard the original code written by Rabbi Cairo in the mid 1500s with all of the primary commentaries that are regularly printed on the page and all the commentaries on the commentaries that are also printed on the page. Um, all of those are printed as a single text, and that's the Shulchan Aruch, um, which leaves us not with a set of rules, which is what Rabbi Cairo would have wanted, or according to some, what the rabbis of the Talmud would have wanted. It leaves us with many, many different interpretations of the rules, many different disagreements about the rules or rejections of the rules and clarifications and so on and so forth. And so we're not usually, we're rarely left with a clear path forward. You mentioned in the case of the Talmud, sometimes the Talmud ends off a discussion with Teku, uh, right? We will we, we'll resolve the question when the Messiah comes, when Mashiach comes, when, when Elijah the prophet comes and reveals to us all the secrets of all things. The Talmud sometimes says that. Um, it doesn't say that so often. But even when it doesn't say that, it's very, very, very rare for the Talmud to end off a discussion with the words halacha, the law is X, Y, and Z. Usually the Talmud, without saying we don't know and we'll leave it unresolved, the Talmud just ends the discussion without uh, reaching a clear resolution of the issue, um, and it leaves it kind of hanging with multiple opinions back and forth, going back and forth in the discussion, and we don't really know what the Talmud or or the rabbis of the Talmud leave off with.
0: Right. Yeah, a couple of things. I, I was actually just reading this book, Kav uh, Hayashar, and he was talking about the hand washing. He basically references a lot of Zohar in this text, he's talking about the hand washing. And in Shikun Ruk, it says. In the morning, you do one side, one side, once on the other, and you go back and forth three times. He's like, "No, that's not the way the Arizal says to do it. It's not the way the Zohar says to do it. You do four times on each side. Explains why to get all the to get the water that has that whatever that spiritual heebie jeebie on it." You know, so there's a different opinion there. The question comes to mind when I'm saying the Talmud. It comes with, you know, we'll re- resolve it when Elijah comes, Mashiach comes. I feel like, well. Why don't you just put this aside then before you have me reading through it? Because there's, I feel like what do we accomplish through this whole exercise of weaving through all these different arguments? And now I don't know what to do, but that's what I think we're here to discuss is why that is there.
1: Right, for sure. Well, so there are a few different possibilities of why that's there. And you can ask the same question about the times when the Talmud does give us an answer, right? Uh, Why give me the discussion? You started off by alluding to one of the possible reasons, right? One of the reasons why the Talmud gives me the back and forth and the discussion is because um, when I don't know the answer, having studied the Talmud, I understand the thought processes and the reasoning and the way to go through, the way to reason through a question from a Talmudic Jewish law perspective. And I only know how to do that if I see how it's done. Um, and so the Talmud provides me with examples of how it's done. That's that's one possibility. Okay. Um, another possibility is, um, and some early commentators on the Talmud and, and authorities on Jewish law made this point, another reason why it's done is perhaps because by t- giving me the back and forth, the discussion, the debate before reaching a conclusion, or not reaching a conclusion, you at least inform me or you help inform me about, what options are not included in the conclusion? What's wrong? By knowing what's wrong, I can help clarify what you told me was correct. Um, anytime you tell me this is a rule, the rule is going to have points of unclarity and points of ambiguity, especially when I try to apply that rule. And so by giving me the discussion and you, tell, you show me which opinions were rejected and why they were rejected, this sheds more light on the rule itself. A third possibility for why the Talmud gives me all of the back and forth and all of the discussion is because the Talmud thinks that the discussion itself is important. The discussion itself is important regardless of conclusions. Whether I come to a conclusion, whether I don't come to a conclusion, whether the conclusion clearly points in one direction or doesn't point in another direction, the act of engaging in the conversation, in the discussion, is in and of itself a critical aspect of what it means to observe Jewish law, to follow Halacha. Halacha, you'll remember, just the word halacha for Jewish law, is not a noun. Halacha is a gerund. It's a verb. It means walking or going. It doesn't mean right. It's often translated as the path to go on or the way to go or or or, or something like that. Um, that's not actually the correct translation. Halacha is the act of walking. It's a practice.
0: Right. Okay. The this last thing you said too brings back something Rabbi Nagel shared with us when we were talking about how to battle the Yetzirah. And he said, Talmud study is one of the greatest tactics. Why? Because you're used to looking at everything from other people's angles, right? And that's part of what gets us out of the attack of the Yetzirah is we begin to see things from other people's perspectives. So there's a little bit of, I would assume, character refinement that goes along with this process of studying Talmud. For sure. I mean, I I would frame it, I think, more specifically
1: as the ability to see things from every different angle. And of course, try to teach this skill in my regular professional life as well, because this is what good lawyering is built on. The ability to see things from the other side's angle or from the other perspective or every perspective, because there's not two perspectives, there's always more than two perspectives. Mm -hmm. This is a way of cultivating humility right? I see it this way. I really genuinely see it this way. It's not, I'm not playing a game, right? I, I reason through a question and I, 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 look, I think about the sources and I interpret the sources and I weigh them against each other. And I do reach a conclusion. And that's my honest to God conclusion, what my mind has produced. But to think that that's the only conclusion, I can see it from someone else's perspective. They really reach that conclusion and it's different from mine. And that means my conclusion is just mine. That matters. It's, it is mine. And it's real, and it's the only one I can reach. Right? The 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 Talmud and, and the Shulchan Aruch say that when it comes to uh, judging, when when a when a when a Jewish law judge, when a possek decides a question of Jewish law, their obligation is always to be don kifiroos ne hadayon, which means they have to judge, they have to rule um, in accordance with whatever there uh, seems apparent to their eyes. You have to judge the case, you have to decide the question the way you see it. You can't see it any other way. God put this question in front of me and gave me this intellect and this perspective and this understanding of the sources and this understanding of the facts of the situation and it produces this opinion. I have to follow that opinion but to think that that is the truth of all things puts me in a place where I guess I've replaced God um, this is not humility. Being able to see it from other people's perspectives says, I see it from my perspective. I'm just a person and I have a perspective and you're a person and you have a perspective. And both of those things leave room for there's something beyond our perspective. There's a God, which puts
0: us all in our, our proper place. Okay. That, that makes sense. So my first thought on this matter would be that our creator would want us to know exactly what to do. You know, what is the proper way to wash your hands? Now I don't know. I got these two different opinions. You know, what does Hashem want me to do? And and there's lots of issues where it comes up to where, you know, I know I have one rabbi I go to whenever there's ambiguity, and it seems like that's happening a lot. Which is like I don't know if it was just to make a bal life really challenging. But why why isn't there more clarity? If Hashem wants us to make His will our will. And he's not really clear on what that is in these circumstances. How do you resolve that?
1: So this might get into, uh, my response, this might get into some bigger issues that maybe is more than we, we intended to get into. But I think I would say with some hesitance, but I would suggest that part of this is because it may not be correct or it may not be 100% correct to think that the sole purpose of everything is God wants us to make the right substantive choices. Um, God wants us to do the right thing. Um, I think uh, sources from Tanakh and on are quite clear that that's not enough. Um, the Nevi'im, the prophets, rail against the idea of mitzvos anashimilumada. milu'mada. When we do the right thing by rote, um, automatically. God does not want robots. God doesn't want us to be robots, Um, specifically, and and Jewish philosophy and spiritual sources are full of this idea. God creates a world and creates a human nature and creates circumstances and puts us in those circumstances and, and, and has a world function the way it does, in part to provide us with free will. Part of free will is not just willpower. Part of free will is uncertainty. If things are abundantly clear, if God was manifestly obvious all the time, Many Kabbalistic sources and Hasidic sources discuss this regularly. If God's presence was obvious all of the time, we would have no free will. This is the idea that we find in, in Midrashim and in rabbinic sources commenting on the verses about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, God, God hardening or strengthening the heart of Pharaoh in the face of the ten plagues. The ten plagues come, and they're pounding Egypt, and they're pounding Pharaoh, and Without God giving Pharaoh some extra willpower, some extra ability to withstand the obviousness of how wrong he is and how futile his efforts at resisting God are, Pharaoh would have no free will, right? The, the, and God wants Pharaoh to make a free-willed choice about what to do here. Uh, otherwise, human existence is purposeless. Um, the human being doesn't then, it, absent free will, a human being doesn't reflect God, isn't a manifestation or an expression of or, or a model, a mirror image, so to speak, of godliness, right. But Seem Elokim, God creates man in his image. Part of that is we are supposed to act good through free will the way God acts with free will. And God does only good through free will. And part of free will is not only the ability to do certain things. Part of free will is the practical circumstances to be able to say, I have to make a choice. And being able to make a choice means the right answer is unclear. Sometimes the right answer is unclear because we don't understand the situation. We're in the midst of a war right now. And as anyone who knows anything about uh, military matters knows that fog of war is always a big problem, right? The military never quite knows what's in front of it. It's always making decisions a little bit in the dark, Right. right? Where is the enemy? What are they doing? There's uncertainty there. And that makes the choices that we make meaningful. Sometimes those choices or the choices are meaningful because we have uncertainty about what the right rules are. I don't know whether I should wash my hands three times, three times on each hand or four times on each hand, to use your example. Um, and therefore, my choice about which one to do is meaningful because I have to think through it. I have to engage humanly with the process of deciding what to do. Sometimes my the ambiguity is not because I don't understand the situation or I don't understand the rules. Sometimes the ambiguity is because there's something inside me that creates conflict. So I have uh, a will to do God's will, and I also have a will to exert my own, my own self-ego and, and my own self. And so I also have a choice not only between three and four times washing each hand, but I also have a choice between wash or don't wash at all, right? And that's built into me as well. And the choice of don't wash at all is only a, a real choice. It's only a live choice for me because it's not abundantly clear that I have to wash, Um, Because there's something about the world and there's something about the circumstances and there's something about Jewish law and my obligation to follow Jewish law that remains a little cloudy. And so that it's not abundantly manifestly clear that I have to wash and here's how I have to do it. So all of that contributes to my decision to wash this way or that way and do it rather than not do it and so on. All of this is a meaningful human choice. I've exerted, exercised my free will. I've used my God-given ability to reason, to think, to be creative in my thinking, to clarify something that was unclear before. Um, And that makes my act morally significant and and godly, so to speak, with a small g, but godly.
0: Because we don't want to fall in the trap of, I guess, these decisions that we're wavering between where there's ambiguity. It's not that we're we are looking to Torah. It's not like the trap without Torah is you just rely on your own ego and your false sense of having this greater intelligence than the creator. We're looking to Torah, but there's ambiguity. And something that comes to mind too is that, you know, when we used to have to, we were commanded to declare when the new moon is. And there was risk that we would get it wrong. But Hashem basically said, the day you come up with what, what you ends up being Yom Kippur, That's what's going to be Yom Kippur in the heavens, right? And there's something to that as well where he's just sort of, I guess, hoisting some responsibility onto us. He's hoisting responsibility. And there are many, many rabbinic, early rabbinic sources. This
1: is not a universally accepted view among, right? Like all things, there's unclarity and disagreement. So there are some, right? The Rambam is a prime example of this. There are some who think that the entire point of the Talmud is to give me the right answers to every question. And if I understand how to read the Talmud right, I can answer every question correctly for all time. If I have perfect reasoning that's unbiased and I have perfect understanding of the Talmud and the rules of the game and how they're applied, I will always get the right answer. And that's what it's about. It's about getting the right answer. The Rambam's view is that. Many others take the opposite view and they say that really the point is to have some degree of unclarity so that human decisions are meaningful. There's a famous idea that's quoted by the Ritva, an early 14th century Rabbi, posey commentator on the Talmud, um, who lived in northern Spain, who relates that the French rabbis, the medieval French rabbis, had this idea, this tradition, where they said that when Moses went up to heaven, they're speaking probably metaphorically, but they're trying to create this uh, impression of how Jewish law, how what Jewish law is all about, and how it functions. They say when Moshe, when Moses goes up to heaven to receive the Torah, um, you might think that Moses receives a bunch of rules. Um, But actually, they say what Moses receives is 49 reasons why any given thing turns out one way under Jewish law and 49 reasons why the same exact thing turns out the opposite way under Jewish law. He receives factors and considerations, things to consider. I can see it this way. I can see it that way. And then God says to Moses, and now I'm handing you all of these considerations that point in all different directions and figure it out. On a case-by-case basis, you get to decide which one is weightier, which side is stronger, which factors tend more towards permissible or prohibited or liable or not liable, guilty, innocent, etc. on a case-by-case basis as you see each issue. No issue is going to purely point in one direction. Every issue is going to contain both considerations that point in one way and considerations that point in the other way. And you are going to make a judgment call every single
0: time about which one you think is weightier well wow. so it was sort of in his best interest then that we sent with the golden calf so he had another 40 days to spend up in the heavens learning not only what to do in, in facts but uh, so th-
1: well that that, <laughs> uh, that opens up a whole fascinating can of worms there are sources that that suggest that there's a the fundamental difference between the original revelation of the torah and the revelation of the torah a second time after the sin of the golden calf is exactly this point point: um, that the original revelation of the torah was absolute clarity absolute clarity about every single thing okay with the caveat that it was absolute clarity to every individual based on that individual's individual perspective on every single thing but meaning the torah that was revealed originally on the sixth day of Sivan so, uh, uh, was literally absolute clarity. Every individual, every Jewish soul received absolute clarity from their perspective about everything. And we had no yitzhara during the first revelation. No yetzarah, right? Then coincide exactly. And there's all of these, the, all of these midrashim and rabbinic teachings about how so much of that original revelation was like the supernatural event that couldn't really exist in this world, right? The idea that God somehow spoke the first two, the idea first of all that God spoke at all, um, is right. God, God doesn't speak. God, God doesn't do the things that we do right so the notion that god speaks obviously is part of this but also the fact that god spoke the first two commandments at the same exact time and expressed both things at once which is an impossibility to exist in in our world from from what we know the idea that when god spoke the first two commandments everybody died right meaning their souls left their bodies they couldn't those two things couldn't exist at the same time. They couldn't both receive clarity and live in this world. At the same time, they had to immediately move to some higher realm where clarity is possible, but that's not here. Right. Um, and, and other ideas that are played out in rabbinic sources about the fir- first revelation of the Torah. The second revelation of the Torah, after they reveal, the Jews reveal, that we can't operate with clarity, right? What happens with the sin of the golden calf? Moses goes up to heaven, he de- he, he's delayed for a, a minute, They think he's coming back here, right? He's coming back now, but he's not back yet. They think they have clarity. And the thing that they think is going to happen or they think has to be true turns out not to be true, meaning they can't entertain the possibility that they got it wrong or they they didn't quite understand when he was supposed to come back. And their immediate response is, based on their own clarity of things, is... We need a different solution, golden calf. We're, that's going to solve our problem, right? Because they think they know. They think they have clarity, and the world didn't work the way their clarity said it worked. And so the second revelation is a revelation of unclarity. The Medrash says that the first revelation is a revelation of Torah, of the written Torah. The second revelation is a revelation of the written Torah with the oral Torah, meaning with all of the stuff that goes into the oral Torah, and not only the Talmud, but Everything that has ever been said about Torah is revealed in the second revelation. Everything that has ever been said about Torah is all over the place, right? 50 million different opinions about everything. All of that is revealed in the second Torah, meaning unclarity, ambiguity, uncertainty is revealed in the second revelation. And it has to be because that produces humility. When things don't go the way I'm supposed to, that's how we rectify the sin of the golden calf through the second revelation. The sin of the golden calf is a product of certainty, is a product of I know. Human beings never have such knowledge, never have such certainty. But I know, and if it didn't work the way I was supposed to, or I thought I was supposed to, then I have to go and serve an idol because the idol will give me certainty. I can control the idol. I can't exist with certainty. Second revelation is no, no, you always exist with uncertainty. You don't know anything. Um, You can make judgment calls, and I'm giving you the ability to make judgment calls, and I'm giving you the tools to make the judgment calls, and the material of Torah to make those judgment calls, but you're going to know that every single time you make a judgment call, it's just you. You don't know everything. You're seeing things from your perspective, and other people are seeing it differently, and... Uh, You can't make this mistake again because when things don't go the way you thought or things turn out different than the way you expected them to, or you thought the answer was A and someone else says it's B and it turns out B was more correct or B works better than A, this doesn't
0: throw you into a tizzy. Right. You turn into a heretic and start.
1: This turns you into, oh, of course, because sometimes I make mistakes because I'm just human and the sources are all over the place. So
0: it seems like according to Maimonides that he believed that with the proper unbiased reasoning the proper conclusion could be drawn in any situation. Well, it seemed like now we could test that thesis because we have AI. Can we just program the thirteen ways of extrapolating the Torah and put the laws in there and feed it all in and Ooh, that's I a great question. Chat GBT, find out how many times to wash my hands. <laughs> uh, I, 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 so
1: I have a teacher and colleague of mine who has actually tried playing around with this a little bit and has been playing around with feeding um, Jewish law sources into AI and then uh, providing novel questions for the AI to resolve. And um, I don't know the answer to your question, but what his experiments seem to be showing is that the AI is not good enough to really answer your question yet. He does this and the AI spits back an answer, which looks good, meaning it it cites things the right way and it's thinking the right way. It's picking up a lot from the sources you're feeding it. Yeah. Um, but If you feed it the same sources multiple different times or consecutively time and time again, it's actually going to see or give back slightly different answers. And reason through the question slightly differently. Um, so I actually don't think we've succeeded in achieving Maimonides' purely objective, or, or really it's not it's Maimonides, but it's really Aristotle's um, pure, pure, pure reason um, that is really truly objective that would produce uh, absolutely correct answers all the time, okay. um, even if that's possible. Which again, like according to some, there's no such thing. There are no correct answers, right? The, the Talmud sort of talks about this idea how up in heaven God is sitting, you know, with with all of uh, with all of the the with, with the yeshiva shemalta, with the academy that exists in heaven, exact whatever exactly that means, all the rabbis, all the angels, whatever exactly it means, are sitting and studying. And the Talmud describes how they're studying some topic, and and nobody knows the answer to a question. God's sitting right there, and God, God 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 doesn't know the answer either. And they turn to human beings to ask for the answer, and the human beings disagree with God, and God's like, "Yeah, great idea, that's perfect, right?" Like, it's not clear at all. That even if we had an objective AI, a truly objective reasoning process, that it could ever produce what we would really call right answers, because it's not clear that there are, there is a right answer. Uh, maybe there's no right answer, you know, objectively speaking, metaphysically speaking. Maybe there is no answer out there that we're trying to find. Maybe there's only the answers that we come up with on a case-by-case basis.
0: So, curious to know your thoughts on why Hashem created things in such a fashion the one thing that comes to my mind is that when you're in a state of ambiguity it causes you to have to reach out to Hashem and pray for answers and solutions so it creates connection which is one of the reasons we're here but it also seems just like this struggle we go through trying to look into where and find the right answer we're looking at the reasoning on why he that he gave us to do that We're, we're sort of aligning our intellect with Hashem in a way by struggling with this. And when you think about like, you know, uh, a relationship with spiritual entity, an infinite internal creator, it's like when they say the angels are just intellect. That's what spirituality is, is just intellect. So it's a way of, I, I guess that's another way he created to connect with him. Is there something along that realm that makes sense for why the design was this
1: in this way? Uh, sure. I think that's a, that's a great idea. I've seen this idea in, in, in various places, although off the top of my head I couldn't really quote them exactly for you, but God is where our understanding leaves off, right? Where, where things are clear to me, or clear to you, or clear to all of us, they're clear to us as a product of our own brains and our own understanding situated in this world, etc. That can't be God. Right? God only has a place where our understanding falls off and there's something we don't understand anymore. Um, there's a famous idea, it's brought down Rav Cook, the, the chief rabbi of British Mandatory Palestine back in, in the 20s and the 30s, and who was a, a halakhic authority and a Kabbalist and a, a poet, a very fascinating, fascinating person, and others make the point that you know, God in here isn't paradoxes. God inheres in paradoxes. How can A and not A be true at the same time? There are many paradoxes. We encounter paradoxes all the time, not contradictions. Contradictions are things that apparently are true. One thing is true, and we're not quite sure which one is or something. But paradoxes, two things that are genuinely true at the same time and that are incompatible with each other. And Rev Cook and others say God inheres in the fact of the paradox because I can't—the human mind can't reconcile the paradox. It's the thing where our ability to reason and reconcile and understand leaves off, and we're left with a paradox. I know A is true, and I know not A is true. I know it. And I can't quite understand how they can both be true, but I know they're both true. And the only thing that can explain that is something that exists beyond what I can possibly understand, and that's the only place where God could exist. Right. Right, okay. It's a state of bringing us back to humility. It's a state of bringing us back to humility. It's a state of also giving us a room for an awareness that, that there's a God. Um, if everything is clear, we'd have no use for God, right? Where, where are some of the places where there is the least use or awareness or, or need for to become aware of God? Areas where we understand the most about things. Um, where do we find the most use for God, or the places where we find uh, very little understanding of things? This point in our history. This point in our history is 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 an excellent is an excellent example for sure. Yeah.
0: This craziness is it's causing a lot of people to reach back out again. Yeah, it's
1: remarkable. Well, he he a few, lot more people you, talking to God now, I think, than two weeks ago. Yeah, absolutely because it's clarified that we don't understand, we can't control, we, 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 we can't manage a situation the way we thought we could manage a situation. And we don't know how it's going to turn out or what it's going to cost in resolving it. You know, we say, oh, we're, we're going to, we're going to deal with the situation and, but we don't know what it's going to cost in the process. And so we're afraid of the cost. But we don't know how it's going to turn out. We don't know if we're going to resolve the situation. We have no idea. We have no idea. That's a scary situation to be in, not knowing, not knowing such important, fundamental things like if we're going to be able to resolve this. So people turn to God. And it's the only thing that that there is left to grab onto. And if it's not there, um, that we're rudderless, where we're
0: completely unmoored. Okay. So we, gotten point. Where we understand there's always going to be some uncertainty. We're always pursuing, trying to find out exactly what Hashem wants us to do through His Torah. But but what do we do in those situations when we're not Clear of what the proper path is. And we see all these different opinions on matters. Yeah, so I think this leads to another very valuable
1: idea, um, which maybe is especially valuable, again, at the moment, in the historical moment that we're in. We seek advice, we seek guidance. When we don't know the answer, we, we go to someone who we think might know the answer, might understand the situation better. If I can't come to a resolution on my own or I don't have the tools or the knowledge to to answer a question or or come to a clarity in my own mind, right, in my own mind about what I should do in this situation or that situation or how I should move forward through this or that, we seek advice from people that we think are better. Uh, uh, Whether that's a a doctor or a lawyer or or, or it's a rabbi, depending on what I'm seeking advice about, uh, this is what we do. And it leads to a fundamentally important thing, which, which is that I'm going to choose somebody to seek advice from. And the person I choose to seek advice from is going to try and resolve or give me some direction or give me some clarity. Hopefully they have more clarity about the issue than I do. And their advice is going to be probably different from the advice I might have received from somebody else that I could have turned to. Um, the choice about where to seek advice becomes very important. If I have unclarity, immobilizing unclarity, I have so much unclarity, so much uncertainty that I can't make a decision. I can't weigh the 49 factors this way and that way and come to a conclusion about what weighs more, um, where things fall out. I seek advice, but my job then is to seek advice responsibly. I can't choose responsibly. I'm going to choose the thing that Somebody else, I'm going to do the thing that my my advisor tells me to do. Um, But I can exercise agency, meaningful agency, in making a choice about where to look and who to follow, whose advice to seek out. And I can make a choice about who to seek out, whose advice to follow, again, drawing on Torah ideas, Torah principles. What kind of advice is good advice? What kind of leadership? What kind of rabbi- what perspective they have, where they come from, how they study, where they studied, what their reasoning process is, what kind of knowledge they have. I can choose all of those things, and I can draw my understanding of what to choose in all of those things from Torah itself. So I still have an opportunity to make meaningful choices. But importantly, it means that I make meaningful choices about who to follow, and the next person makes meaningful choices about who to follow. And we don't necessarily choose the same person. And that means that we receive different advice about the things we don't know and i do one thing and they do something else and it's very important to respect that because the issue is not clear
0: one experience i had that you may not be familiar with this but when my wife went through her conversion a year and a half ago they gave me a conversion to remove all doubts just because of some a great-great-grandmother that was adopted as an infant and the questions they asked of course are about you know you believe that Mount Sinai received the Torah, but one of the final questions was, do you have a rabbi to go to on these matters? And I think the whole idea there too is we're still we're it's also a process of humbling ourselves, which is the the way of constantly remaining in that connection, to Hashem. I you know, if I go back and do it over again, I probably would have like gotten a question and asked rabbis what's your take on how long you have to wait after eating meat before you can have milk. <laughs> Cause my beloved rabbi, Zinga, he goes for full six hours. Like, well, if I should ask that first, but that's, uh, but I should have cool. found the Dutch rabbi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the whole idea was like, you're not, you're not shopping pains, but you, you're once again, putting yourself in a state of humility and say, you're wiser than me. What's your decision on this matter? Right. I mean, you bring up shopping, shopping for opinions, right? Like
1: shopping, we, we, we criticize shopping for opinions, but I think oftentimes we give it undeserved criticism. It's important to shop for opinions. It just depends what you're shopping for, how you're shopping. Right. Are you shopping for the cheapest opinion? Or are you shopping for the best opinion? Shopping for opinions. Uh, I ask some kinds of questions to one person and other kinds of questions to the next person. Um, not because I, they give me the result that I, something inside me wants, but because I think that one person understands this issue well, and another person understands that issue well, and a third person can't understand either of those two issues well for whatever reasons, but they understand something else very well. Um, And I go to different people for different kinds of things. We shop for opinions. Not everybody, nobody has clarity about everything. And that means that shopping for opinions is not necessary. Shopping
0: for opinions is a good thing. We should shop, but we should shop for the right reasons. Right. Because we're trying, we're trying to find the truth for us and what What's the the best way to serve Hashem? I, I think that brings a lot of clarity. I'm glad you came on and shared your wisdom with us on this matter because as you know, a lot of people listening are Baltashuva's like myself getting in trying to learn how all this works and you know, learning that there's not always an absolute answer to everything is really I think what we sort of lent to with the humility and the ambiguity and the, the whole idea of that it causes us to need to pray for answers often it really sort of lends his whole overall idea that Hashem created the world for one reason that's because he wants a relationship with us
1: right 100 and and I think it all lends itself to a very important point especially you know in the context of of uh, people who are bale etc we should be wary and cautious of the people who have all the answers Inevitably, I, I think especially in, in the Kirov world, in, in, the, in the outreach, Jewish outreach world and the Bolchuva world, there are, there are lots of people out there who think they have, who, who, who brand themselves and, and present themselves and, and, uh, as having all of the answers. And Judaism has all the answers for you. And they don't really mean Judaism has all the answers for you. They mean, I have all the answers for you because I am your conduit to Judaism. And there's a lot of that out there. Um, and we should be wary of that. Um, in many ways. Number one, because that means we're dealing with people who have a serious humility problem. And if they have a humility problem, I think they have a God problem. And that's not what we're here for. Or we're not here to put a person or a golden calf in the place of uh, of God, because the golden calf or the person, the rabbi even, can provide us with all of the clarity and all of the answers. Um, part of A relationship with god i think is becoming uncomfortable with the fact that we're living with god which means we're always living in a place of uncertainty because god has clarity we never do and we never have all the clarity and so part of having a relationship with god means learning to live and be comfortable and and navigate and exist within uncertainty all the time
0: beautiful rabbi thanks again for coming on the show again if you want to reach out to me if you have questions for the rabbi or myself I love hearing from you. My new email is shema at torchweb.org. Thank you, Rabbi, for coming on. I hope we can have you on again. Thanks so much,
1: Uh, absolutely. I don't know if I know anything else to talk about, but maybe we can find something. All right,
0: thank you, Rabbi. (laughs) Sure.
1: If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking Donate in the top right corner of the page.